This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. I'm in the Houses of Parliament on a night when something genuinely historic has happened. The eyes to the right, 202. The nose to the left, 432. But tonight's vote tells us nothing about what it does support. Nothing about how or even if it intends to honour the decision the British people took. The government has lost the confidence of this House and this country. I therefore, Mr Speaker, inform you I have now tabled a motion of no confidence in this government. Well, that's it. That's the meaningful vote on Theresa May's deal, and it's even bigger than anyone expected. I'm Matt Chorley. This is the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Theresa May's deal has gone down to a much heavier defeat than anyone expected. Just 202 MPs turned out for Theresa May's deal. That's 196 Tory MPs were loyal to the Prime Minister. Just three Labour MPs in the end backed it and a few independents, but 432 MPs voted against it, far worse than anyone expected. In this special edition of the Red Box podcast, we'll look at how this compares to previous historic defeats with Philip Cowley. I'll ask Daniel Finkelstein, the Times columnist and Conservative peer, whether or not there's anything Theresa May could have done differently. Hugo Rifkin, Ian Martin and Esther Weber compare the atmosphere inside Parliament with the extraordinary protests outside and wonder about the way forward. And Henry Zeffman, the Times flowchart expert, tries to plot a course over the coming weeks and just how late can we go until there might be a general election. What does this mean for Theresa May? What does this mean for Jeremy Corbyn? Is that going to become the story of the week? But I began by collaring as many MPs as I could in central lobby, just outside the House of Commons chamber. And I just wanted to ask them two questions, really. Sum up this result in just a word. Some of them found that more difficult than others. And also try to explain what it is that they think the Commons might be able to unite around, as it clearly isn't this. They struggled with that as well. I began by collaring Boris Johnson, the former Foreign Secretary, the arch-critic of Theresa May's deal. I was uh, slightly surprised by the scale of the, of the, of the defeat. I, obviously, I take no, uh, no particular pleasure in it. I, don't, I, I never rejoice in, in the idea of a Conservative government being defeated on anything. But the positive 
news is that this gives the Prime Minister a massive mandate to go back to our friends and partners and say, look, this withdrawal agreement really won't fly. And we need a new, a fresh approach that allows us properly to take advantage of, of Brexit. So can you sum up in a sentence what it is that you think the Commons could unite around, which it hasn't done so far? I think what the Commons has already united around the salient and crucial point, uh, which is that uh, we have to leave the EU on March the 29th. Uh, they've been very clear, We MPs have been very clear about that. Um, all other options are very, very hard to uh, to achieve. Uh, I think, you know, the, as, as I was saying just now, the idea of trying to for the, for the government to try to sort of cannibalise Labour votes uh, in the hope of getting a you know getting a customs union through or something. I don't think that will work. I, I think the defects of the, of the so-called uh, Norway option are very clear to a, a huge numbers of MPs. Um, extending Article 50, I think, would be taken very badly by 17.4 million people. Uh, similarly, a second referendum would plunge us back again into a an orgy of toxic tedium of the kind that, you know, nobody wants. You, you talked this week about your regret at pulling out of the, the contest in 2016. Have you been surprised or disappointed at the, the mess the Prime Minister has made of it? Are those the only two options you're giving me? You could be delighted. Is it a failure on her part to not bring the party together, you know, not take on board the concerns that you were raising I'll last make, July? It's a very, Matt, it's a very important point. I'm, I'll give you a general answer, OK, because I do care about this unbelievably strongly. What I did, what uh, Michael Gove did, Priti Patel, what we all campaigned for was incredibly important. It was a real change. It, offered up, it opened up a, a new avenue for the UK. And there was a chance in 2016 and, and thereafter for the government to get behind it and to treat it as something exciting and different and new and positive. And instead, I'm afraid to say that they didn't. And in spite of everything I tried to do, uh, we continued to treat Brexit as though it was a, a, a disaster, an adverse weather event to be managed. And that's not how I see it. And I do think that allowed antipathy to Brexit to grow among some people and I think and, and, it, and it never really dispelled so what happened was nobody ever felt mobilized or motivated to, to move forward there was we were constantly wrangling and I yeah I, I think it was a, a great shame and I think the, the, the moment is now the moment is now in view of this uh, clear verdict by by Parliament the, the moment is now to say okay um, Parliament wants its democratic freedoms upheld. They don't. They don't want the the withdrawal agreement as it's currently framed because it is anti-democratic. Let's get something else. Let's get something fresh and different. And I think that would be. You know. I think now is the moment for the government to seize that opportunity. Just finally, has there ever been a point where you've thought, looking at all this mess, it might have been better if we just hadn't bothered? Uh, no. I think if we get it right, there are massive opportunities, and now is the time to get it right. Mary Quay, uh, Labour MP. Sum up that result in a word. Unprecedented, historic, momentous. Like whopping, huge, great, but yeah. And uh, what is it that you think, in a sentence, we now know what Parliament won't unite around. In a sentence, what is it that you think that Parliament could unite around? A people's vote. Do you? Isn't that the one thing that there isn't a majority for in the Commons? 
Parliament is bitterly divided over what happens next and there is no majority in the House for Norway. So it's just another exercise in kicking the can down the road. Norway does not work for our economy and it's too late to negotiate it. The businesses in Wakefield that I speak to want certainty and this is a terrible mess and the only way through it is to take take it back to the people. Um, the polls are showing us that majority um, against her deal want to remain. Um, if it's a choice between her deal or remaining, they want to stay and they want a people's vote. And that is what the majority of Labour members, uh, Labour voters and the general public now want. But not your leader at the moment. He seems very, very reluctant to commit to a second referendum. Well, Jer Jeremy's a Democrat and um, he wants you know, the party to have much more influence over policy and our party policy is clear. After the no confidence vote tomorrow, um, we will be, if, if, that is, if our vote is defeated, um, then we will be in a position to explore all options, uh, including a people's vote with an option to remain. And it's very hard to see what other options can command the ma a majority in the House. So you're clear, if, if the government wins the vote no confidence, you move on from calling for a general election, the Labour Party policy has got to move to second referendum. Very clear. And that is, I've had people queuing up to tell me that in Wakefield and in Sheffield this weekend, you know, every weekend, that the, the pressure is building. People are absolutely passionate about this. They are, uh, they can't understand why we didn't move the vote of no confidence before Christmas, if I'm honest. James Cleverly, Deputy Chairman of the Tory Party. Can you sum up that result in a word? Well, it's disappointing. Um, but uh, it's we, we Go on, knew, more words, more words, more words. Well, otherwise, a very short, and boring podcast. Um, we, we we knew that there were lots of people opposed to that. I think a lot of us suspected that it wouldn't get through uh, in this uh, in this uh, vote. The bottom line now is that we know what the majority of MPs don't like. That's great. What we need to find out is that what the majority of MPs will back. So, in a sentence, what is it the thing that you think the House could unite around? Well, I don't know, because they haven't made it clear. And being opposed to stuff is really easy. Anyone can do that. The challenge is actually being uh, proactive, being positive, not being, uh, you know, a uh, dog in the manger about this. We've got to deliver the Brexit result, and we've got to do it in a way that protects the UK economy, and that's what we're going to have to thrash out. And how furious are you, your colleagues tonight, the hundreds of colleagues who voted against the Prime Minister? Well, I... I Say I'm disappointed. I'm not angry. I'm disappointed because for me, having uh, having campaigned for Brexit, I felt this did deliver on the things that people voted for. Not everyone agrees with me on this. We're going to disagree on, on on things, but the bottom line is we've now got to find something we can agree on, which delivers on the Brexit result, gets us out of the EU, and does so in good order. So done now by Chris Leslie, Labour MP. Sum up that result in a word. I've say unprecedented I've never seen anything quite as devastating for a Prime Minister so now we'll see whether a general election is triggered I've not yet found a single Conservative or DUP MP who's going to vote against the government continuing so once that's passed I suppose all the eyes will be on what Jeremy Corbyn's going to do that block of Labour votes which by rights according to conference policy should be supporting a people's vote and I don't know if you're a betting man. What do you think the chances are of Jeremy Corbyn back backing a second referendum? Well, he'd, he'd absolutely better do that because that's the expectation, not just from Labour Party members, but from supporters, from hundreds of thousands of people who marched through the street. If To not do that would feel a bit like, you know, Nick Clegg 
promising, you know, to not raise tuition fees and then tripling them. I mean, I think this feels like a promise that the Labour Party made back in September. If the government's policy is defeated, it can't trigger an election, then people's vote is where Labour Party policy should go. And how bad would it be for Labour support, particularly amongst young people, if that didn't happen? Well, I'd say the same as Nick, happened to Nick Clegg with tuition fees, and we all know where that story went. And I think you'd get the same sense from those millions of young people, particularly those who didn't get a chance to vote the first time round. I think we may next week get a chance to actually vote on another motion. I suspect there'll be a people's vote amendment then. So hopefully Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party will whip in favour and support that. Therese Coffey, Government Minister, sum up that result in a word. Well, it was a massive result. Uh, very few people uh, from the opposition decided to support the deal tonight. A bit like the referendum, people will have voted tonight for a number of different reasons. Uh, on our side, resentment uh, against the Prime Minister for a variety of reasons. Uh, we saw it, it being polarising. Some people who want to obviously a second referendum, some people who just believe that by saying no this time round, the EU will suddenly change its mind, or EU27. And, of course, Labour are very keen to get another election. So we've got a big vote tomorrow. I'm confident the Prime Minister will secure the overall confidence of the House. Uh, and then, obviously, the crunch talks will come up in the next uh, 72 hours after that. And in a sentence, what is it that you think the House could unite behind if it's not this? I'll be candid. From all the debates that we've had, I'm afraid that still isn't clear. Yeah. I think what needs to be clear to people who seem to think that somehow the House will now sit on its hands and will just let the clock tick down to uh, a no-deal Brexit by default, haven't either listened to what happened, uh, saw what happened last week or listened to what the Speaker said tonight. Quite specifically, it feels to me that um, for those people who really want a Brexit, they've got to wake up and recognise they've got to work with the government to make sure that happens, otherwise it will be taken out of their hands. So how does this rebellion, this defeat, compare to previous votes in the past? This really is one for the history books, as Philip Cowley, a politics professor from Queen Mary University, explains. There's an important difference between big rebellions and big defeats. It, it's technically possible for the government to suffer quite big rebellions uh, by its own MPs, but not lose the vote because the opposition come to their aid. And in fact, that's usually what you see with big rebellions. So uh, ahead of the Brexit vote, the largest rebellion of modern British politics was the Iraq rebellion in 2003, when 139 Labour MPs voted against their whip. But Tony Blair knew he was going to win uh, because he had support from the Conservatives. That's the largest rebellion since the, the Corn Laws, but you know, it wasn't a government defeat. Uh, the same is true of the largest Conservative rebellion uh, before the Brexit vote, because that was uh, in 1997. 95 Conservative MPs defied their whip then uh, over gun control under John Major, but Major's whips knew they would win because they had the support of uh, the, the Labour Party on that occasion. Um, and this is at least in part because normally if a lot of your own MPs are going to rebel uh, and you don't have the support of the opposition, you don't push ahead with the vote because um, that's normal, sensible politics, uh, which is also what marks out the, the, the Brexit vote as being different. Um, now, trying to come up with a historic precedent for the defeats is harder because 
you have to be clear about what you're talking about with defeats. I mean, we need to exclude votes where the government chooses not to fight, which is what it does at the moment over opposition days sometimes. Uh, you know, occasionally you have accidents or, or ambushes where the Conservative whips are caught unawares, uh, or the, the, the government whips are caught unawares, uh, and, and you can have what look like government defeats but are in fact free votes. But if you look at what you might call yeah, contested or, or meaningful defeats, then you know, most of them are pretty small. They're, they're you know, about half of them are by about ten votes, uh, about two thirds by twenty or, or fewer votes. Uh, I can only find three defeats by a hundred or more votes in the past hundred or so years. Uh, all took place during the Labour minority government of 1924. Uh, which suffered defeats of 166, 161, and 140. Uh, but this was a really atypical period. I mean, Labour then had under 200 seats. It governed only with the tacit support of, of the Liberals, and it knew it could suffer heavy defeats at any point. Um, in the post-war period, I think the comparisons are... There's a defeat in 1979 uh, by 89 votes, although that's on a very low turnout. That The largest post-war defeat... Uh, where at least 50% of the House voted uh, and the government went down to defeat came in 1978 uh, when the Callaghan government lost by 86 votes. Um, I can't find any genuine three-figure defeat in the post-war period. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. OK, I'm joined now by Daniel Finkelstein, uh, Times columnist and Tory peer. We're sat at the slightly the Lord's end of the uh, central lobby, Danny. The votes literally just happened and there's been the exchanges in the Commons. First of all, what do you make of it? It's a huffing great big defeat, isn't it? Yes, it's at the far end of expectations. It means that every, almost everybody who we thought was going to vote against it voted against it and quite a few other people abstained. Uh, and it makes it hard to see how she gets any version of her deal through, to be honest. It has long been my view that that's likely to be the case uh, and that... Only, the only thing that will get through is something that has the support of Labour's front bench. They First of all, have, we have to have a meaningful vote that passes, and secondly, a, a withdrawal bill has to pass. And I'm not convinced I know what that is. Perhaps there'll be a second referendum. Certainly, uh, you know, 
I think that the uh, Brexiteers have exhausted the patience of someone like me who said uh, we had a vote, we voted to leave, let's try and organise to leave. The Prime Minister's tried to do that and they don't want that. Are you, are you changing your mind about a second referendum? It's not so much I'm changing my mind because I still think a second referendum is a really bad idea. But I don't want no deal. Uh, and uh, I think the Prime Minister should try and see what changes she can make to the deal to see whether she can get it through. It's hard to think, see what that might be. Uh, maybe there are changes Labour would accept. Um, again, I think their incentive is all to vote against the Prime Minister's deal. Um, but I worry that they're not going to support a second referendum either and we'll just end up with nothing. But my own view is uh, I opposed having a second referendum uh, because I thought we should honour the referendum. I think the Prime Minister has honoured the referendum. These people have now rejected it and all, as far as I'm concerned, all bets are off. If it's a Norway deal, if it's a, uh, custom, a permanent customs union, if it's EFTA uh, uh, in some other form, um, if it's uh, a second referendum, all of those things I will give very strong consideration to if they can get a majority. And in my view, uh, if the Brexiteers really think people want to end the Good Friday Agreement, they really want uh, to have no transition period, they really want very large tariffs on World Trade Organization terms, and that that's what the Brexit vote means, then I'm going to ask them to check it with the electorate, that that's really what they meant. So um, I, I haven't altered my view that this is a colossal failure for Parliament not to be able to implement the results of the referendum. But if Parliament cannot implement it, it's not, in my view, acceptable for it to flop out. So that's my view. But obviously we then have to concentrate on the question of what we think will happen. To what extent do you think this is a colossal failure by Theresa May over the past either two years since the general election when she lost a majority or even since 2016 when she became Prime Minister? Is there anything she could have done differently? Personally, I can't see what that is. I know everyone sort of, you know, look, I didn't agree with the red lines in the Lancaster House uh, speech party. In, uh, I take a different view on the customs union and its validity, for example. And I think um, that the, the getting the tone in the election uh, right would have involved making more of an appeal to Remainers as well as Leavers and not turning the Conservative Party into the kind of Lever party. So there were mistakes that were made. But do I think we'd be in a fundamentally different position? No, I don't, because I think that the people who've supported Brexit have now committed themselves, or lots of them, not all of them, but the majority of them, have committed themselves to a completely untenable position. And what was she supposed to do? She was only ever going to get a deal that was something like this. The Labour Party was not going to support it because it's split between those people who just want to get rid of the Conservatives and those people who wanted a second referendum. And she doesn't have uh, the support in her own party for it. So the temptation we'd say, oh, this is all a failure of the Prime Minister. It's because she's not very forthcoming and she doesn't, you know, she's not very welcoming to Hillary Benn and she didn't have enough open meetings. I just don't I think that's true. I mean, I even now don't know what Hillary Benn wants, right? I mean, he, he's welcome for him to say so. Nick Robinson interviewed him for 45 minutes. I listened to the whole thing and I still don't know. That's the thing, isn't it? Prime Minister said we now know what the Commons doesn't want, but we don't know what they do want. And the problem with there not being an amendment or anything like that is that it's gone down to a hoofing great defeat, but we're still no further forward in, in being clear what uh, MPs actually want. And, and presumably as well, had she done better in the general election, had she got a decent majority, Someone like Nick Timothy, the architect of those Lancaster House red lines, would still be in number 10. She possibly even pursuing a, a harder Brexit. Exactly. So one of the things is I'm not sure that she would have got a deal if he'd been there because I think she would have gone down on different lines. And you can ask yourself the question, well, how does someone move like that and be critical of that? I think that is a question mark over Theresa May more generally. But big issue here is what now do 
either the Labour front bench or Labour rebels want. Will the Labour rebels, if they want a second referendum, be able to force the party to go down that route? It's certainly one of the ways in which Parliament could stop us going over the cliff. And that's one of my main considerations. But I've always been quite sceptical of that. I think if you listen to Jeremy Corbyn carefully, even when he says he's in favour of the customs union, it turns out he isn't really. He's quite... He's quite hard line in his view, plus lots of his people think that, that, that the electoral position is more mixed than would be my assessment. My assessment is they wouldn't pay a huge electoral price for going for um, uh, a, uh, a second referendum, but their judgment is that that's not the case. And you have to respect their judgment, actually, because their judgment of some of their voters proved actually quite good in the past so um, you know so I wouldn't arrogantly say that's completely wrong but it's not my assessment that means that Jeremy Corbyn might try to come up with a formula that allows him to look like he's in favour of a referendum without actually being in favour of one that gets through Parliament and works um, my own view as a Conservative is that the Conservative Party now has to work with Labour even if that means it's going to lose even more of its support but whether the government can survive that, that's another big question. So this could, it's not hard to see how this result tonight might lead to a general election. Danny Fickelstein, thank you very much. OK, so here we are next to the statue of Gladstone in Central Lobby, beneath a large chandelier. It's still quite busy, lots of politicians broadcasting to a grateful nation. The key thing is that none of them seem to agree with each other at all, as all the MPs I've spoken to uh, demonstrated. So trying to make sense of it now, I'm joined by a proper bunch of people who really do know what's going on. Esther Webber, the Red Box reporter, and Times columnists Ian Martin and Hugo Rifkin. Let's start, uh, first of all, the same question I was asking the politicians. Sum up the scale of the result in a word, Esther? Uh, staggering. Ian? Calamitous. Hugo? Sort of expected or not expected. It doesn't matter. It's all it, like you, you knew what was going to happen. It doesn't matter how big it is. Yeah, all the politicians struggled with one word as well. You're right in that we, we now know what Parliament doesn't want, probably by a bigger margin than we expected. But what happens now? We were talking about this earlier, and it's a bit like it's like when you read The Hobbit, right? And you think The Hobbit is a novel all of its own, and then you realize you're actually just in the early stages of a much, much bigger saga. And it's like I think we've sort of been thinking lately that the whole Brexit thing is slightly coming to an end, the debate. It's not coming to an end. We're maybe, what, 32% into the argument? You know, it's just going to go on and on and on. You realise now, we're not, we're not going anywhere. Now, Ian, it's all your fault, this, isn't it? Of course, I accept full responsibility. If it, is, if it is the Hobbit, though, does that mean that Tory MP Andrew Bridgen is one of the elves? <laughs> um, I wouldn't be surprised if he does have hairy feet, but that's an entirely separate, uh, entirely separate point. I disagree with Hugo on the scale of it because there was a sense around uh, Westminster today that the result would be a bit closer than that. You heard some, some people saying she would lose by 80 or 90, others saying around 200. Uh, and then when it came, you could sense in the chamber just this, the impact on MPs and watching journalists. That is an epic defeat. So what does the result mean? Because there's a sort of, there's a curve of results as to how bad they are, as to how likely it is that Theresa May gets something. If the result had been very narrow, 
Brussels probably wouldn't have given her very much. If it had been a bit bigger, they might have thought, well, we need to give her something. Is this so big that she doesn't get anything? And they just say, look, there's nothing that's going to unlock this. Um, I think that is a real possibility that actually the scale is so large that they think, well, look, there's nothing we can do for you, I'm afraid. Uh, you're on your own. Now, outside, although in uh, the Commons it was sort of high drama, we're sort of used to used to the packed Commons and the results and all that. Outside Parliament, the, it's extraordinary scenes, a carnival atmosphere here. Just, you've been out there having a wander around. Just try to describe it. It's nonsense. You wander <laughs> around, and I mean, I, I got there and like for a long time I couldn't figure out. It sounds weird, but I couldn't figure out what side anybody was on. Like you know, with the EU flags, but then you see people in the middle of all the EU, EU flags waving a Union Jack, and you're like, well, that's not totally clear. And then you think, well. You're, you're waving a banner that says Best for Britain on it. I've forgotten what Best for Britain is. And then there's somebody with a Welsh flag. Two people with Welsh flags, one on each side. Both felt the Welsh flag was doing it for them. People in yellow vests, are they on one side? Are they on the other side? Are they stewards? Who knows? <laughs> um, and, I mean, everyone seemed to be enjoying themselves, which is nice. Probably it, more so than people in here. It reminded me of sort of when you're on holiday and you, you turn a corner and end up in the, the town square and you think, oh, there's a festival on. And then actually you realise there's some farmers protesting and they're about to set fire to something. And it, <laughs> it could turn at any moment. But it is very weird. And the big clanging... Have you seen the big clanging bell drum machine? No, I saw, I, I saw your, 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 your picture tweet of it or whatever it was, but I did, it, alas, that had gone by the it's, time I got it's there. It's very much a structure. They've sort of built it and it's got liberty and democracy written on it and they've got a, there's a sort of massive drum and there's a man next to it very enthusiastically ringing a bell but telling people that when he ordered the bell online he thought it was going to be bigger. <laughs> Which, if that's not a metaphor for Brexit, I don't know what is. Ian, how quickly do you think, certainly this week, because Theresa May is not due back in Parliament until next Monday, how quickly does attention turn to the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn, is he finally going to have to get off the fence? The indications are tonight, I mean obviously he, well, he doesn't have to immediately because tomorrow is the or, or Thursday is consumed by the vote of confidence and that'll be simply about Jeremy Corbyn saying that the government is disgraceful and useless and lots of people agreeing and the government probably almost certainly winning because Tory Remainers who might eventually have to bring down the government are not prepared to do it quite yet, though they might do in about five or six weeks time. You think it's more um, like to be the Remainers rather than the Brexiteers being the government now? Well, it could be, it could be either, it depends how it, how it falls, but I think the government should win the vote on Thursday, but if the, the let-win bowls attempt to block no deal fails, because it's quite difficult to manage as a piece of legislation, if that fails, the nuclear option of Tory Remainers, and there's probably a group of about 30 MPs who think they won't stand again and have nothing to lose, if they have to blow up the government at that point, I think it's pretty, it's pretty clear in six, seven, eight weeks' time that they'd be prepared um, to do that. Where it shifts um, the attention onto to Labour is that once you have the vote of confidence out the way, yes, he is, he's going to have to declare on second referendum. The indication tonight, he and the people closest to him still reluctant to do that and still see it in terms of delivering Brexit. I mean, it's the, it's the great secret of the Brexit movement. Every time we Brexiteers gather for one of our secret meetings, <laughs> a bit like the Masons, we begin with a toast to Jeremy Corbyn and Seamus Mill, because we couldn't, have, we couldn't have done it without them. Mind you, we haven't done it yet, actually. <laughs> you haven't done it yet. On the sort of marks out of 10 or percentage, how likely is it that it might not happen for you? I think it's still sort of 60-40 likely to happen in the end somehow, but I really fear the implications and consequences of a second referendum, the damage that would, would be done. Uh, I still think it will happen in some, in some form. Um, the, the, the difficulty is that there clearly is 
a solution there, but it lies across various parties, and there doesn't yet really sit in something that's Norway-ish or Norway plus some form of customs union ends up being the worst of all outcomes, I would argue. But you, you could probably get the votes for that, but how do you assemble them? You need a person to do it, you need a prime minister. It's clearly not Theresa May. She doesn't, she doesn't uh, have the authority or the, or the wit or the imagination to do it. But the votes are probably there for it, but it's impossible to get to. And I think in some ways during the course of this vote, a lot of MPs have kind of boxed themselves into a corner They've said there are so many things they won't do, and the only thing that will help is legally binding assurance, legal guarantees. Um, But now if something else comes forward that isn't that, how do they change their position? And in some ways, today kind of leaves the key facts unchanged, which are the only thing we've legislated for is leaving. And the two other things, a deal or remaining in the EU, are really complicated and we don't know how to do them. So nothing has changed, (laughs) as someone once said. It's worth noting just how badly Theresa May has handled it, that she was always going to lose, but she could have lost a month ago and she chose to put it off till now. I mean, how badly did she think she was going to lose a month ago that she had to wait a month to lose this badly? You know, it, it, it's, um, she, I mean, I may be wrong, but she doesn't appear to have gained anything at all by postponing the vote in December. But lost, a, lost just literally lost a month as the clock ticks down. Yeah. They seem, in the aftermath, meaning number 10, they seem pretty stunned and pretty clueless. I mean, I had, a, I had assumed that they would have from the Tory chief whip some sort of indication it was going to be that bad and then have games more than they have or had had a response that somehow involved calling in all the party leaders immediately or something this evening or first thing tomorrow morning it's unclear whether the cabinet will actually meet i mean it met today to no great effect at all should surely be meeting almost in permanent session at the moment to try and find a way through we're standing next to statue of gladstone and i think that's one of the things that baffles me about the the way the politics is playing out is that If this was the 19th century and you would have expected a great constitutional crisis like this to produce something similar, you would already have seen the parties break up, whether formally or informally, into into various groupings. It's clear that there's a group of 50, 60, 70 Labour MPs who would be prepared to vote for something like Norway, but they don't seem to have the gumption and this is mirrored on the Tory side as well to somehow work across the aisle as they would say in American politics and everyone seems stuck inside a rigid party political system uh, two and a half party system which it seems pretty obvious is is broken but no one seems capable of actually making making the move you would have by now as I say if it was the 19th century you would have you'd have 70 70 uh, soft Brexit um, liberals who were prepared to, to move and to trade with the government. No sign of that, of that yet at all. If it's going to come, it's going to have to come very quickly in the next few weeks. OK, finally, Esther, I feel like we should just talk about um, John Burko. Uh, we had another... Andrea led some zinger from the dispatch box as uh, she was trying to set out how the vote no conference is going to work. And she, she said she was ex- exceptionally grateful to the uh, speaker, to which he replied, uh, I, I don't care whether or not she's grateful or not. What role does he play in all of this over the, the coming days? We keep being told that he's gone rogue and is going to do everything he can to stop Brexit. What, what can he do over the coming days? 
Um, well, I think he he has played a massive role because we've seen that um, at every opportunity he is willing to, as he sees it, give Matt Benches the benefit of the doubt um, or as the government sees it, overturn centuries of precedent and try and block the will of the people. I think the key in what happens next is um, if Theresa May comes back with another version of this deal, which we understand is perfectly within the rules. I mean, there is some speculation that perhaps he will find it's not quite as within the rules as everyone previously thought. And interestingly, in the comments, he said that he would do everything he could to give MPs the opportunity to debate and vote on basically anything, regardless of whether or not it was the uh, government that brought it forward. Esther, Ian, Hugo, thank you very much. So finally, before we wrap up, what happens next? We can only ask one person, the Times resident flow chart expert, Henry Zephbert, who produced this this work of art uh, ahead of the vote that never was in December. A couple of bits have dropped off it. So we've had the vote of no confidence in Theresa May, and we know how that's gone. The vote no confidence in the government's about to drop off, Henry? That's right. So tomorrow, uh, the government has cleared its commons business for the day. They were planning votes on all sorts of things. And instead, they're going to be voting on just one thing, whether this House has confidence in Theresa May as Prime Minister, in Theresa May's government. Now, she is almost certain to win. Very quickly after Jeremy Corbyn tabled the vote uh, tonight, the DUP came out and said, we back the Prime Minister, we will vote for her. And the simple reason for that is that she hasn't enacted the deal that they hate so much. She hasn't been able to, so there's no reason for them to collapse her government. Uh, And the second key thing that happened is that the ERG, the sort of hardest Brexiteer Conservative MP, said, of course we'll be voting for Theresa May. They are not yet pressing the nuclear button, which a few people, not a lot, but a few people think they might at some point be willing to press, which is to call a general election rather than allow Theresa May to force through her Brexit deal. So what happens next? We know Theresa May is goes off to Brussels, asks them for something. We're not sure what, if anything, she'll get. She comes back to Parliament on Monday. It's all a bit up in the air. Who will, you know, she could probably bring it back to the Cummins a couple of times. What are the key dates we actually have to worry about as the the clock ticks down to, to March 29th? Well, look, I did know when I was making the updated version of the flowchart that, again, Theresa May would find a way to make me want to scream uh, and do something which isn't on there. And she sort of gestured at doing something which isn't on there. She talked uh, straight after she lost the vote in the House of Commons today about some sort of consultation mechanism. She said she wants to reach out to MPs. Uh, She didn't quite say, but she sort of implied uh, on a cross-party basis. Now, if that is a meaningful reaching out and everything we know about Theresa May, everything we've seen in her six years as Home Secretary in two years as Prime Minister says that that won't be meaningful but if it is, if she defies uh, a lifetime of introversion and does actually reach out to MPs across the House, then that might actually delay her going to Brussels. She might strike some grand bargain with Labour MPs, perhaps Labour backbenchers perhaps for a customs union and then go back to Brussels with that new negotiating mandate. If she does that then the process starts to get quite complicated. Alternatively, if she can't strike some grand bargain with Hillary Benham, Keir Starmer and Yvette Cooper, then she will probably go back to Brussels and say, once again, I'd like some more assurances on the backstop. Now, again, she has to bring that back to the House of Commons and hold a vote. Now, the really key date might be a date that basically no one has talked about at all 
so far. And, and this is something we were doing while we were waiting for the vote today, because uh, the debate whisper it was quite boring. Uh, <laughs> and that date is Wednesday, January the 30th. Now, why is that the key date? Well, the Labour Party has managed to avoid taking a particularly firm position on Brexit either way by saying they want a general election. Now, for that general election to be able to alter the course of Brexit, you would need Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister before March 29th, i.e. before the UK leaves the EU. Now, suppose for that you need MPs to have a week before Brexit, at the very least, to A, be sworn in, and then B, uh, extend Article 50 or change the negotiations or whatever. Now, that necessitates polling day of Thursday, March the 21st. Now, there's all sorts of laws about how long general election campaigns can be. Parliament must be dissolved 25 working days before polling day. That includes discounting bank holidays, including bank holidays which only apply in some parts of the UK. So St Patrick's Day in Northern Ireland uh, (laughs) comes into play here. Anyway, the upshot of all that is that the last date on which Labour can force a vote of no confidence uh, successfully in the government, then have the two-week period under which MPs sort of haggle to see if they can force a new government, a mandatory two-week period which can't be shortened, uh, is that date at the end of January. So I think we are going to start seeing Labour MPs cotton on to the fact that Theresa May can reach out as much as she likes. Jeremy Corbyn can talk about not just tomorrow's vote vote of no confidence, but perhaps a further one and a further one and a further one. But by the end of January, Labour need to either enforce the general election or be forced by circumstance into giving a much clearer sense of where they're going to go on Brexit. And so what's the most likely outcome of all of this? General election, second referendum, deal, no deal, no Brexit? Uh, late nights for me and you. <laughs> well, on that cheery note, Henry Zeffard, thank you very much. So listen, I apologise if once again you've got to the end of the podcast and you're none the wiser as to what's going to happen, but that's because nobody still knows what's going to happen. In the end, the defeat was much bigger than we expected, but it doesn't really move us very far forward. Do remember to sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox as I try to guide you through what is happening in politics every morning at 5am and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from. My huge thanks to Philip Cowley, Daniel Finkelstein, Hugo Rifkin, Ian Martin, Esther Weber, Henry Zeffman and all the MPs that I spoke to. Thank you for listening. But to play us out, the unmistakable and absolutely infuriating sound of some Brexiteers banging a drum and ringing a bell. Only a few seconds of it for you, but imagine this going on all day in Westminster. For me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.